This is The Radical Therapist, a space where we explore the intersections of collaborative therapy, philosophy, art and science and technology in a post-Freud, post-psychology world. Welcome to The Radical Therapist. This is your host, Chris Hoff, and we are now at episode number 86. And this is a special one, friends, because I have uh, a previous guest. This is a return guest, which doesn't hasn't happened that many times here in The Radical Therapist. But today, Justine Diarigo will be joining me, um, and we're going to be talking about a project we did together that is coming out in a book emerging project with Thick Press. Uh, by the time you listen to this, it might even be out. I'm not exactly sure. But we're really excited about it. It's a book emerging project with Th- Thick Press. And the title of the project is Beyond Critique, Composition and Curiosity in Therapy. And this is a project uh, where Justine and I have um, kind of, you know, written down some of the things that we've been thinking and talking about for the last couple of years. And we didn't really want to do it. We're kind of subverting the academic <laughs> uh, journal process in, in this. And Thick Press, uh, Aaron and Julie of Thick Press have just been amazing about uh, inviting us to do this project and 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 putting it out and uh, and it's going to be coming out at uh, kind of the release I think is really at the end of the month or February twenty fifth and twenty eighth at Printed Matters Virtual Art Book Fair and if you're not familiar with Printed Matter they're um, uh, in New York and they and they've done uh, fairs uh, for since about two thousand five and so Printed Matters. Art book fairs have hosted international exhibitors featuring a wide variety of published works from zines to artist books to rare and out-of-print publications and contemporary art editions. And they are going to be hosting um, a a virtual art book fair uh, on February 25th through 28th. And Justine and I are, and Julie and Aaron are actually going to do a Facebook Live on the Radical Therapist Facebook page. So look out for that. Um, that'll be coming, announcing here shortly. Um, but this fair kind of brings together uh, our, the New York and L.A. art book fair communities and also expands it beyond that, of course, because it is virtual now. So for those of you that are really into art book fairs like I am, you might want to check that out. That's when our book's going to be released. So we're really excited about this project. And so I have Justine Diarigo with me to my writing partner, my longtime writing partner. We've published a couple of things through the kind of the traditional routes, the academic journal stuff together. Uh, but for those of you that don't know Justine, Justine Diarigo is counseling factor, uh, faculty at Cal State University San Bernardino, my writing partner, and just, you know, um, you know, uh, my confidant in a lot of ways too. So, um, so hi, Justine. Glad to have hi. you. <laughs> well, yeah. Hi. Good to good to be back on the Radical Therapist. Yeah. Awesome. So we get to talk today. It's we have this interesting dilemma of getting to talk about our own work and. <laughs> um, so I thought I would start by you know one more time, everybody. The 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 title of our project is Beyond Critique: um, Composition and Curiosity in Therapy and. 
Uh, so, in this, it, you know, we start this work that's going to be coming out by making the claim that contemporary family therapy and counseling fields are at a crossroads, right? We, and if we are to remain impactful in these contemporary times, it is necessary for us to take a critical look at the tools, ideas, and beliefs that have shaped and governed our work. While the world we live in is struggling with new fundamentalisms in both domestic and global politics, we are witness to and cannot deny the influence of these larger contexts on the intimate conversations we have with those who seek our help. Um, at the time of this writing, many in the field are wrestling with how to integrate social justice into therapy and counseling in tangible and explicit ways, which we've written about in the past. And uh, the more and more therapists are understanding that therapy is bigger than what happens in the four walls of most therapy offices and are engaged in an effort to confront these systemic problems uh, in the larger social context. In this effort, helpers are increasingly relying on critique and, and deconstruction, tools that have a long history and more post-structural ways of working. And we believe that these tools have become largely distributed across ideologies. For example, I, I read an article recently where they called President Trump the, Trump the first postmodern president, right? Oof. Uh, <laughs> well, so, so the, and we, we, we are kind of critiquing these tools now. Are they the tools that are going to take us into the future or have they kind of been lost um, across ideologies now? I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that, on our, our initial claim. Yeah, if I have any thoughts on that, sure, yeah. <laughs> read my book. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> read our book. <laughs> um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, I think you bring up a good point about Trump being referred to as the first postmodern president. And I think that that should sort of like alert people's ears to the fact that like maybe something has gone awry here, right? <laughs> um, sort of the, the tool of deconstruction, the intent of it, how it has been um, sort of uh, like Latour talks about how it's become a virus that's been let loose out of the lab. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Which is a good uh, analogy in our days of pandemic. Yeah. Right, right. It might be a little bit too apt right now for all of us, right? Right. <laughs> um, but right, so this what sort of thing, something that has started with a good intention um, has mutated um, and been taken up in ways that now are sort of like... Um, it, like, I love how Latour talks about, like, ruins upon ruins, right? Mm -hmm. Like, wars, wars, so many wars. When he opens in that article, it's, that's, like, the perfect way to capture the sentiment, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, I think, you know, he speaks about it in terms of us being intellectuals, right? So, like, as scholars and intellectuals, should we be at war also? Um, and I think we, I think you and I have sort of brought that into the, the field of therapy, where as therapists, should we be at war, right? As therapists, should we be contributing ruins to ruins? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's how we, uh, I, you, me, us together have kind of come to this work of like wanting to pause and be like, what's happening here? Right. Um, yeah. No, and that, that's great. You have me thinking about, and, and for the listeners, maybe we're thinking about, when we say Trump being a postmodern president, he was one who started to excuse me, he started to attack facts, right, or tr mm -hmm. truth or 
um, these kinds of things, um, which, if we were honest with ourselves, came out of what would be characterized as the left, maybe, or um, you know, some of these taking on uh, take it, taken for granted assumptions. Uh, and uh, and you saw how this mutated. It, it got out of the lab, so to speak, as Latour mm-hmm. talks about. And we're talking about Bruno Latour's seminal piece of work called uh, "Has Critique Critique Lost Steam?" Or um, I think yeah, that's why is Critique Lost Steam? Yeah, yeah, right. So um, that's been very influential on both of us. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so continuing on, I was going to think something, but I forgot what it was. But we titled this work Beyond Critique, but we also write about going beyond deconstruction. And in in our work, we claim everybody is a deconstructionist now, right? And Latour argues that if critique is going to be relevant again, it will be found in the cultivation of a stubbornly realistic, realist attitude, or rather a second empiricism dealing with what Latour calls matters of concern, rather than matters of fact. And that, you know, we're seeing we've lost the matters of fact. And so how do we uh, maybe pivot a little bit to matters of concern? Uh, But about experience or events which get derailed by politics or ideology. Do you have any thoughts about this? I know you've talked about um, how deconstruction has escaped the lab. Um, Right, right. Yeah, I mean, so what resonates for me in Latour's work, and we've talked about this a lot, which it might seem... um, it might seem paradoxical, actually, because you and I come from, we, we sort of situate ourselves coming from more post-structural, post-modern approaches sure. to therapy, right? Yeah, right. Um, and e- even in our writing, we do that as well. Um, and I think, I think maybe the paradox I'm thinking is that I think oftentimes the, how people consume post-structuralism is that it is about getting us away from facts, right? Or like it's, um, it's about, you know, we should always be con- deconstructing or suspicious of facts. Right. Um, and I think that, that what resonates for me in Latour's work that you and I have sort of like chewed on a bit is that it was actually, it's actually not about getting away from facts, right? <laughs> it's about how do we get closer to them? Um, so it's almost like we don't want to fight empiricism. Like we kind of like want to renew empiricism. Right. That, and I mean, I think that's going to like put us in a whole different conversation as well about, you know, how do we get close to matters of concern? But um, those are my those are my thoughts. Yeah, yeah. yeah Gu- I, guide me back. Yeah. yeah. So I was, yeah, and I'm thinking about yeah. Everybody's a deconstructionist now. One of the things that we've been talking yeah. about is yeah. that you know, and I think everybody listening can realize like everybody's really good at critique, right? And ultimately, what this project is about is how do we move from critique to composition and um that everybody's good at like i mean look at your uh, instagram feed now or whatever everybody's good at taking down things but nobody uh, do you see anybody that's being able to compose and compose compose with more than just um their group of uh you know whatever uh, pure pure ideology ideological Mm. belief systems right um and if you're not inside that people don't know how to compose with the collective uh, then uh, maybe with the individual but we get stuck in that individualistic thing um so that's one of the things we're talking about like everybody's gotten good at critique and and i and i'm guilty of it as well right i like critiquing things um uh, but now my challenge has always been like how, how you know along with maybe a critique where what's the composition right mm-hmm. um okay so Chris, can i say something yeah, about that real sure, fast sure. i'm just thinking how 
right? We were trained to do this in our PhD program, right? This is sort of like uh, we've we've used education as like the vehicle to support, like you know, we need to teach students how to have a critical mind. We need to teach therapists how to have a critical mind. Um, but yeah, but then what gets left in its wake, right? So we take apart we we um, all the all of these sort of constructions or experiences are now we deconstruct them to now where they're left in pieces. But then how do we recompose those back together? That's that's the part we haven't always done, right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't, nobody thinks about that. Um, no, and and now and you see, like you said, now these tools, these critical, mm-hmm. these cr- tools of critique, like Latour would say, has have escaped the lab, and now right. everybody's using them. So now, now you see what we have. We have this very divisive, and and some of it's, you know, I don't want to discount. Uh, systems of oppression, those kinds of things, yeah. and that they shouldn't be critiqued. I'm just not what I'm saying, but yeah. Uh, but you know, there's there's just everybody has one move, and that's just critique, uh-huh. right? And so we're uh-huh. we're maybe uh, making uh, encouraging or trying to maybe make possible some more moves, right? Mm-hmm. That that yeah. move, like Latour said, that that move of critique is only taken us so far. And now it's just, like you said, ruins upon ruins. We're just building ruins. Right. right. Yeah. And it, I was reviewing, I was reviewing some of Latour's writing and it makes sense to me, the, the seduction of critique, right? So he talks about how, right, why does it feel so good to have a critical mind? Well, it's because you, you're always in the position of being right. Exactly. <laughs> right. right. You, yeah. you have the, you have the better, yeah. your finger is on the pulse of like the projections people are making about yeah. the things that they're saying are facts. Right. Yeah. Um, and you're able to see it and they're not. Um, but now, but now everybody is, is, has this tool of critique. Yeah. So all, from all sides, everyone is doing the same thing, which just leaves us. Stuck. Yeah, everyone's running around being right. right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so it's just we're not building anything. No, and yeah. nobody wants to risk not knowing. Well, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, uh, which we're going to get to. That leads us. <laughs> that leads us into my next kind of thought, yeah. and um, and that was that um, for for us one of the primary casualties of all of this and this is the piece for all the listeners that we've kind of wanted to get at and this is the curiosity piece of the writing that we did but because we make the claim that one of the primary casualties of this contemporary way of working that what's happening with critique and all that has been curiosity and um, maybe this is where we talk about we we, you know the instance and um, Mm. I'm wondering if you can talk about what we think is getting in the way of curiosity yeah um, well, you're really the one that kind of um, put the put the structure around how Latour uses this idea of the instance and then how that comes into our work. But yeah, I think um, you and I have talked a lot about how curiosity really gets sidelined by the ways that we're taught to come to conclusions so fast, right? <laughs> um, about anything, like right. whether that's um, like in psychology, making really quick assessments about what someone's pathology is, right? How do you be curious from that place? You don't, you can't, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're like so focused on putting to use your expert knowledge. Um, and when that is front and center, how curious are we being about the client, like the client's experience, right? And this gets, this gets refashioned, that instant process, right? So the instant psych- psychoanalysis that you and I call that, right? Mm-hmm. Or the instant psychology, that becomes instant sociology, becomes instant revisionism. Yeah. Um, and so we're so focused on doing things quickly and, 
and putting to use our expert knowledge that curiosity is just sort of an afterthought um, or it's or it's there to confirm. Yeah, and I, I think uh, this is um, this is what hashtag hot take is doing to <laughs> doing to our field, right? And so, in the paper for the listeners and in the work, the book emerging work, um, we lay out our kind of three what we call the instance, um, and yeah. it's instant psychology, instant sociology, and then instant revisionism, all primarily borrowed from Bruno Latour's work. Um, uh, and instant psychology is that, you know, just kind of slapping uh, a category on a person, you know, this person is mm-hmm. fill in the blank diagnosis or whatever. And then we totalize and lose the person behind uh, systems of categorization. Right. And then mm-hmm. but what something we've both been concerned about and this, I think this is an important piece. And, and this is where, you know, this is the piece that probably will get us canceled. But <laughs> <laughs> Most definitely. Yeah, yeah, but this is where, we, you know, we're seeing it now in social justice efforts, right, where now there's like an expertise on what gets named as the system of oppression or the problem, or this larger mm-hmm. social uh, context problem. Um, you're seeing the same kind of expert knowledge showing up. And this kind of structural way of thinking, um, this b- kind of binary way of thinking, it's interesting, you're seeing post people who work from really post-structural places moving into more structural definitions of mm-hmm. people when they when they start talking about social justice stuff and mm-hmm. but also they start um, you know determining what what problems are right they're doing the same kind of thing right. that people might have done with the DSM before now right. they're doing it with social justice problems right. and we call it you know people are beginning to colonize other people uh, but they're doing it from a countercultural perspective, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we, I mean, we've written about that before, right? That somehow, <laughs> um, somehow, like for our conscience, um, that feels more okay to do, right? Like yeah. when we're when we're engaged in a potential process of colonization, but if we're doing it, um, use like when when we're doing it attuning to experiences and systemic injustice it's less bad than when we're doing it in a way that supports traditional or modern psychology right um or western psychology right right. um but there's still but right and i think that's where you and i have really wanted to hold our work accountable um to say should we be thinking about (laughs) right even if even if it supports what we're labeling as social justice efforts and therapy um, is there also an edge to this that we should sort of be more cautious and tentative with? Like, are there unintended consequences when we define someone's experience as falling within a realm of a particular systemic issue um, or cultural issue that's, you know, has to do with oppression and power? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I think probably for you and I, because we are white therapists, there is even an additional layer for us of wanting to be mindful of like, do we really have the power to name that for clients, particularly clients um, who are, who are clients of color or different experiences. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, but yet we, we are seeing this, we are all doing this so quickly. It's that instant, it's the instant understanding of problems in a, in a context that labels them as like, these are injustice issues. Right. Yeah. Um, or we define that a person's being oppressed 
but maybe they don't feel oppressed. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe that's not their experience. That's their not experience their definition of what's happening. Yeah. And then we feel like we need to correct their understanding uh-huh. of their own experience. Right. Right. We need to enlighten them. Uh-huh. Right. So we, that's where we get into the socio-education, right? Yeah, right. Which is the, the social justice um, part. It's the social justice counterpart to psychoeducation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And our final instant is instant revisionism, which I think is you're seeing more and more now because everybody has to have – this is the hashtag hot take, right? Everybody has to have kind of a hot take about – um, when an event happens to go back in time based on a particular ideology or belief or a particular view and then recreate that experience or, or narrate that experience through that particular lens. And this is another thing that we have to, especially as therapists, you know, when we're going mm-hmm. back in time. Um, with clients, how do we not? Um, and and I don't know if we have an answer for this one, honestly. But it is I something hope we don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, but it is something we want to pay attention to, right? And it's like, what what are we taking back with us? What kind of lenses are we? And how are we revising particular events based on? ideology right mm-hmm. and you see it happen like say the the capital insurrection for example depending upon yeah. where people are placed you know you get to see how that thing gets narrated right that would be an example yeah yeah, yeah. i think we've lived through instant revisionism i mean certainly for the last four years right <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly yeah and, you know, yeah and so uh, and this is where, depending upon agenda, right, and this is how mm-hmm. things get narrated or the story gets told or uh, how meaning-making gets done, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, just for our readers, much of, you know, where are we getting these ideas or what, how have we been influenced or where are these ideas coming from? So much of our approach is influenced by two seminal papers written by, uh, philosopher and social scientist Bruno Latour, who's French. Uh, Why has critique run out of steam? 2004 and a compositionist manifesto. 2010. If you haven't read those, I highly recommend them. You can get them. Uh, just Google them on the, and they'll be. Out, and you don't have to get through a paywall or anything like that. And also, we were profoundly influenced by uh, Dr. Anna Louise Keating's work, Transformation Now Toward a Post-Oppositional Politics of Change. And maybe I was hoping you could say something about how these works have influenced you and Mm -hmm. and us and, like, why are they so important to us? Yeah. Uh, Well, I think part of their importance has been... um, I mean, you and I love curiosity, right? We sort of like want to, <laughs> we want to uh, reinvigorate curiosity and we want to bring that back to be like a real central part of the work. Um, and like, like the real kind of curiosity. And I, and I shouldn't say it that way, but <laughs> right. Like not the, not the, the feigned curiosity because we're supposed yeah. to ask questions as therapists. Right. right. Um, but because we really don't know and because we're really trying to construct and create with questions, um, and I think that's why these works have been so important. Um, I mean, I could say a lot, but I think, um, you know, when Latour is talking about how, why critique was used in the first place, it was because there was an assumption of a world we were trying to get to. And he would say that that's not, that world doesn't really exist, right? Like, um, 
it's my, it's when we compose a world, we're composing something that we don't even know yet. Right. We don't, it's, it's not a thing we're trying to find. And I think like Anna Louise Keating's work puts us in that, in that ballpark as well of, um, post-oppositionality holding space for the both and is a really unknown tentative always in flux (laughs) liminal kind of experience Mm -hmm. right so I think there's a lot of overlap between composition and post-oppositionality that it's sort of um we can't we can't know ahead of time exactly where we're headed I mean that that's like the antithesis of the work right yeah absolutely Okay. Um, so, so we've been talking about tools not working and Latour asks if we can devise another powerful descriptive tool that deals with matters of concern mm. and whose important task will be not to debunk, but mm. p- to protect and care. So the question that directs our efforts is how do we move from an individual experience to a collective adventure? And I'm wondering, uh, if we could say more about this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's, I mean, I don't, you might say this too. like, I don't totally know. I think that it's possible, yeah, right. right? Like right. you and I live in the space that it's possible. Yeah. Um, well, it's like, but, we're, but we figure it out as we go. Yeah. And I think, um, it's it's that like how do we switch from or move from like that safe critique place you know where, where you get to always be right right and uh, to like to protecting and caring for uh, ideas um, projects um, I uh, you know possibilities uh, and protect and care for them together in the face of you know being accused of being sentimental or naive or um, all of these kinds of things. And this isn't about, you know, some right. utopian vision, like we're going to get to some, That's uh, right. <laughs> you know, there's no end point to this, right? We don't have a vision of an end point, but, uh, but how do we collectively, um, uh, move to, and this is the interesting piece to me because we have become so in- individualized in various ways, like, you know, the, the, the hashtag do you boo, right? so, <laughs> you know, that's this idea, right. you know, just that, you know, if it doesn't serve you, don't deal with it, you know, you know, which is in a lot of cases can be helpful for people. But if we're going to embark on a new collective mm-hmm. adventure, uh, that's, you know, we're going to have to be uncomfortable together and we're going to have to, um, um, and how do we create tools yeah. that support stepping into that kind of liminal space? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I'm just thinking how there is like a really um, precarious blurring of some things that maybe are helpful for us, but then, but then we can't like we like I, like I'm thinking about the you do you boo right <laughs> where it's like anything that doesn't serve you, like you're, you're justified to make a boundary with that. Right. right? right. And, and that's okay. If that's what you need to do for yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. Right. In some instances, in some cases, in some contexts, but I think there's this, like um, there's sort of like this mass application to like all parts of our experience of that same principle. And I, I think that that's like, 
not complex enough. No, <laughs> it's not nuanced enough. Yeah, and I think it's been hijacked by that individual individualistic ethic, right? right? And um, and it has, and right. it has rendered us in a lot of ways unable to have hard conversations, to be exactly. un- be uncomfortable, to you know. And I think this is where Sarah Schulman's work, conflict, mm. is not abuse like that but like how people kind of she makes a claim people overstate harm and and in harmful ways that that shut down conversations and that kind of thing so um (laughs) yeah you're right but i think like you're so right right like um thinking about this move from an individual to a collective adventure I mean, that's like the the question of all time, right? Like, we, <laughs> yeah, right. how do we get back to a collective sense of of our responsibility to one another? Right. Oof! In the United States, that's a that's a tall order. Um, possible. I think you live in you and I live in the the, the realm where that is possible. Um, but I don't know, Chris, what you would say about this. And this might be a conversation for a totally different time. But like Latour has a lot of like spiritual threads in what he writes. Mm-hmm. Right. And that mm-hmm. like, you know, he'll, he talks about God, right. Whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's also part of it is that there's like a, the, like the, the spiritual, and, and I think of that as like um, being in a position of a seeker, right. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't always know what is like, sort of like, at the, at the next door. Right. Um, so are we all willing to go to that unknown liminal space together? Like what you said, are we willing to be uncomfortable and to not have the answer? Um, and this probably all sounds like it's, I'm reducing it down to something really simple, but I think, um, those are really hard things, right? No. And I think it, I think you, you, you had me thinking about like in Zen, we talk about great faith and great doubt, right? running alongside mm-hmm. each other that, you know, the great right. doubt that anything's going to happen with this. Right. And then great faith that we will be okay. You know, that there will get somewhere. Right. And, right. and I think that's a lot of our work. How do we hold tensions? Right. And, um, and I, th- I hear you talk about that a lot. Like how do, how do we hold a lot of this tension uh, mm-hmm. together and move forward? So. Yeah. That there won't be resolution to it. Yeah. And in fact, and in fact, that's a good thing. Okay, uh, let's talk about Dr. Anna Louise Keating's work uh, around post-oppositional uh, politics of change. Um, Dr. Keating, you know, takes the position that we live in a larger culture of oppositionism, and she wrote this book, I think, in 2012. And I mean, look mm. at it, look at us now, right? Jeez. <laughs> That what becomes normative or right within culture is determined by beating down or stamping out various other alternatives that an oppositional culture creates norms and values through domination. Keating goes on to describe how in this mental framework of opposition, we destroy the possibility for the both and uh, to survive as a necessary tension. What When we do this, we leave few opportunities for other considerations or possibilities that stand outside of normative judgment. I mean, what are your thoughts on post-oppositionality and how it influences our work? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, yeah, you're fun- it's funny. The book was written in 2012. It was kind of prophetic, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Um, I, you know, I think how how I have taken taken this idea of post-oppositionality that she writes about sort of in as an, as an, as a counseling therapist educator um, and a person trained as a therapist myself. And I would say like you and I are probably similar in this, but um, 
I want to go, I want like, so, so Anna Louise Keating would talk about how like we, there's this desire to be entirely inclusive, right? So like we, yeah. we, we want to seek to create the complex commonalities rather than reduce them. Um, it's kind of like we want to breathe life into those places, um, places where, you know, we, we can acknowledge sort of paradox and contradiction and multiplicity. Um, and I think sometimes the, the, like how that shifts the work is that oftentimes people maybe are seeking, seeking help or support to help reduce contradiction, um, or complexities, right? We like we all maybe could really think that we would thrive from some more simplicity in our lives, um, but that maybe our work as therapists as well is to kind of is to kind of get really curious about what grows from those go, grows from those places of paradox and contradiction, right? So to not resolve them, um, but to see what kind of like to see what they create. Um, those are, those are some of my initial thoughts about like this post-oppositional, like the both and that's a really simple way to describe it. Mm -hmm. And if you live it, that's hard, <laughs> right? Both <laughs> and is super hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, she, uh, Dr. Keating does draw on Gloria Anzaldúa's work around yes. the Napantalara and, and this, yeah. this figure that kind of doesn't attach to any kind of particular movement or just a, a, a person that can navigate all the in-between spaces, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And not particularly inhabiting them fully. And um, I always use that as a model um, for uh, so hard to do, but a model for how th the skills we're probably going to need um, mm -hmm. as we embark on the future, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Gloria Anzaldúa uses that image of the, the bridge that we're standing on is we're continually taking it apart and building it as we're walking across it. Right. Yeah, so that's right. like a, to me, it's like a real visual imagery of liminal space. Yeah. Um, and then the Pantlera just lives there. Yeah. Right. And, and has some, and, and like has ease there. <laughs> right. <laughs> that that's like, that that's a place where there's actually like, um, some, I don't know if I want to use the energy, word comfort, but maybe or there's energy, right? There's life there. Yeah. <laughs> there's life there rather than just absolute terror, right? right? That we can like, <laughs> we can actually be on that bridge and we can not know where it goes or if we'll have a foothold in the next step. But like we are creating that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So last question. So, um, so we're making the case for a more, or a compositionist approach. Um, mm. and I guess for our listeners, uh, what is our competence, compositionist approach? Compositionist thank approach. You, thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, I love, I'm going to borrow from Latour. Okay. Um, cause I think, right his whole idea around compositionism is that it's um, tentative and precautionary progression. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think like, to me, that's sort of like an anchor um, in what it means to take this compositionist approach. Um, and, and I mean, you could speak more to this too, but I think like what, what a compositionist approach is, you know, he talks about how the critic um, is not the one who debunks, but the critic is one who assembles. Yeah. Um, and so I think um, we, he, yeah, we, we, I think being a compositionist, 
therapist, maybe that's going to be a thing that we're going to say in years to come. <laughs> um, right. Um, but like we were creating spaces, um, he would call them like arenas where, where, where we gather, right. Where we gather the things. Um, and I think when I'm, when I'm imagining myself in a space of compositionality, um, or composing in the context with a client, I think part of what you and I presented on in Vancouver was this idea of like, we're going to ask questions that intentionally situate what oftentimes we might think are contradictory things. We're going to, we're going to intentionally put those together mm -hmm. in how we construct a question. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of the examples from that are like, right, like we've talked about what's an example off the top of my head. Um, like in our culture, we don't really value people who hear voices, right? Like we, sure. we have a certain connotation to what we think that that, what kind of experience that creates for them. Um, and oftentimes traditional psychology approaches would see that as really um, standing against someone's sanity, right? Yeah. So if they're hearing voices. Yeah. Um, but I think a compositionist approach can be, you know, how, like, you know, wh what, what do those voices teach you about remaining sane? Right. right? And like, I think intentionally asking questions that people would often think like these two experiences are sort of like um, polarized from one another, like don't fit together. Um, that's just one way I think of, of visioning how to do this work. No. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've been thinking a lot about that too, and I don't want to settle on anything or try to fix it, but I think there's some, sure. some things that can help and, you know, for our listeners, like what, what would a composition approach look at? I, I think I, I like Michael White wrote once, and I don't think he really, unfortunately, finished up on that. But mm. he said it was important to engage in some predictions of experiences that are to be had in liminal phase. And I, mm. uh, and I don't think he ever, That's beautiful. yeah, kind of came up with yeah. uh, maps for that. But I, I think you know there is ways we can begin to. Um, map the driving forces that um, uh, that are going to um, be at play in these new kinds of ways of being. Um, you know that that um, there's a school of um, that I've become interested in lately that I, I hope to recruit Justine in, into writing with me about it around future scenarios that's being mm. used in climate science right now that. Um, but, but, but was born out of street theater and, uh, improvisation, improvisation and stuff and, uh, how, the, you know, kind of creating future scenarios, uh, can help guide people into, uh, liminal space and, and have conversations about what they might expect as they try to do this collective adventure together like a street theater performance and if you're f not familiar street theater people would be presented with some sort of scenario right like and then they had to play it out in the moment and i think there's you know from those kinds of um expertise or uh just knowledge we can learn a lot right um about how to help people kind of come together and and perform something yeah uh, to compose something in the moment so yeah i appreciate that you're you're speaking to that layer too of what we have held as important in some of our ideas about compositionism is uh and the word you use was improvisation i think that that's so on point mm -hmm. um 
because you know you and I have had this experience of people are like so what is it like what is a compositionist approach and you know we joke like I think we did this in Vancouver we're like we don't fucking know I don't know if I can say that on your podcast you it's okay yeah <laughs> right? right but we like we we don't know yeah right like so we're not we're not saying like that like this is a, this is now our new structure mm-hmm. our new formula yeah for kind of a, a this like new era of approaching therapy mm. um we're just playing with ideas yeah. right yeah. and we're resonating with ideas and we're curious and wondering how this shapes us how yeah. this shapes our work how this might might shape the experience for clients right but yeah and in some ways, I think it's it's on purpose because, you know, people want to reduce things down so they That's can right. bring the critical tools at play. Uh, you know, and, and we, we don't want to fall into your trap. <laughs> so. right. right. We're intentionally not going to define it yeah. so that you can't deconstruct it. Exactly. <laughs> we're going to we're right. going to play that game with you. So. Right. <laughs> OK. Right. Uh, any final thoughts? Um um, my final thoughts are that this is just like, um, this is a dot, dot, dot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like, and, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully some of the, these ideas are exciting to people and they check out our, our little WordPress booklet. And, yeah. Um, um, yeah. So listeners, if you made it this far, thank you for <laughs> listening. And just a reminder, we, this, all this work that you, and, and much more is coming out in a book emerging process, uh, project with thick press and will be featured at the printed matter virtual art book fair on the weekend of February 25th through 28th on, t- uh, 20, uh, this month. And we will, like I said, we will be doing, uh, a Facebook live at the radical therapist, Facebook page. So if you're not, uh, a friend of the Facebook page, I go do that and you'll be able to get caught up on the announcements there. If you want to order this, I think it's not, it's fairly cheap. I think it's going to be under $10, this, uh, our book emerging project. You could just go to thick press, T H I C K P R E S S dot com and, you know, shoot them an email or it's going to be up on their website pretty soon, probably in the next, I don't know when this is coming out, but soon. So keep an eye out for that and you can get a, You can get a unique copy. It's an art book with these ideas all in it. And what do you see it? We're really, really proud of it. And it's going to be fun and unique. And and it might even you consider it an art object that you're going to want to take a look at. So, um, okay. So thank you, everybody, uh, for listening. And please come find The Radical Therapist on all our social media if you want to be updated about all the stuff that's coming up this month regarding this project. You can find us on uh, Instagram at The Radical Therapist, on Twitter at The Rad Therapist, Facebook, of course. And if you have any questions, email me at... Uh, uh, the radical therapist at gmail.com. How can people find you, Justine? How would they reach out to you? Yeah, they can reach me uh, through the Cal State San Bernardino website, which is just csusb.edu. Um, and you can type in my name, Justine DeRigo, and it'll take you to a place where all my info is there for you. So, email address and all that good stuff if anyone is interested in having further conversation. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, okay, everybody. Um, Thank you again for listening. Uh, My name is uh, Chris Hoff. This has been another episode of The Radical Therapist. And as always, thanks for listening.